This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. There we go. Um, so for tonight, uh, I hope you, um, this is where you want to be. I'm not sure. Um, So our title is The Monster in the Closet, Facing the Question of What to Wear. And I'm going to start off tonight by talking about what this lecture is not about, because sometimes that clarifies. Um, So first off, I know the PowerPoint is pink, but this lecture is not just for women. It's it's for people who wear clothes, which I am pleased to see all of you (laughs) up here to be. Um, And second, this is not a modesty talk. I'm going to use that word later, but it's going to have a particular meaning that I will define. Um, And related to that, I'm not planning to give you any rules for dressing. I'm not going to give you fashion advice in this lecture. Um, I'm not going to talk about seasonal color analysis or body types or how to purge your closet or where to shop, even though those are all things I'm interested in, and I would be happy to talk with you about that one-on-one. But this is not a self-help lecture. There's actually a section uh, at your public library where you can find those books. Um, I I did go there to the Southboro Public Library and, and found them. Um, and yeah, really great stuff. I mean, if you, yeah, if that's the kind of advice you're looking for, it's out there. And finally, this question, uh, this lecture, sorry, is not going to actually answer the question of what to wear. Um, so let me back up a little bit. Some of you probably know exactly what I mean when I call the question of what to wear a monster. You have stood in front of an overflowing closet and said, I have nothing to wear. Or you have rushed out your door, leaving a trail of discarded outfits behind you, realizing you're late. Finally wearing something that you're like, eh, this is passable. Or you've shopped for hours and then left the store with nothing. Because all you wanted was a pair of pants that are unbleached, unventilated, and unbedazzled. Just pants, just pants. Um, You know, two legs, yeah. But some of you might not relate at all. Some of you might have never thought that what to wear was a question. Um, You know, you you throw something on the top and something on the bottom, and if it's cold, you do double up. Or... um, or, and you don't really you don't really shop for clothes. They just sort of like come to you at Christmas or like from your from someone as a hand me down or maybe you just always had them and you still have them somehow. Um, so whether or not this is a question you're familiar with, this lecture is going to help us face the question. And I think. Um, This is a very real question, the question of what to wear, and I think it's a serious question. I think it's worth uh, our time and attention. Um, And and here's why. I think we live with some 
realities. Some of the realities we live with. First of all, we have to wear clothes. Um, and, and in our society today, very few of us have lives that come with a uniform. I mean, even if you have a job that has a uniform, that you don't wear your uniform for all the rest of your life. Um, and so, um, so yeah, we, we have to wear clothes. And related to that, we have to choose what to wear. Um, we have choices about this. And our choices aren't simply personal choices. Clothing is very interesting because, here's another reality we live with, it's both super personal but also very public. So very, very few people will see what I choose to put on my bedroom walls or, um, or whether or not I make my bed. And, and, you know, next level, relatively few people will see how I decorate my living room. But every person who sees me will see what I chose to wear. Um, and relatedly, right, my, my boss doesn't care what I put on my bedroom walls um, or if I make my bed. But she probably cares about what I wear to work. She probably has something to say about whether that was appropriate or not to wear to work. And, and, and though our society is probably probably the freest society that has ever existed in terms of choice about what to wear and, and what's allowed, um, we still don't have the same kind of freedom in decorating our bodies as we do in decorating our spaces. It's very interesting. Which leads to the next reality I want to point out. Clothing is not simply utilitarian. It's true, we can't go naked because we're vulnerable to the elements, to the cold, to the heat, to parasites. Um, But clothing is so much more than protection. If we go back to the beginning in Genesis, nakedness isn't just a bare fact, pun intended. Um, It means something. Nakedness means shame. It means alienation. It means a lost glory, a lost safety, a lost relationship. And the first clothes in Genesis also mean something. They mean sacrifice. They mean provision. There's many things we could talk about they mean. So the reality is that clothing communicates meaning. And then the final reality I want to claim here and that I, I hope this lecture supports is that Christians should care about clothes. They should take the question of what to wear seriously. Um, so with, with these realities in mind, um, here's, here's a brief outline of where we're headed this evening. I'm going to describe the monster of our title, which is going to show us, I think, some of the typical things we take into consideration when we make choices about clothing. And from that, I want to offer some additional or alternative considerations for Christians. So the monster in the closet has two heads, but because it's still one monster, they're very closely connected. Um, and these are the two, the, or they are two of the things, not the only things, but two of the things that make um, figuring out what to wear, the question of getting dressed, challenging. And the first of these is fashion. So for For much of history, there really wasn't a question of what to wear. Clothing was very labor-intensive and expensive to produce, and so most people only had one set of clothing. And those who had more wealth had more choice, but overall, um, what you wore was still prescribed by your position in society. 
Um, it might, in some societies, it might have even been prescribed by law what you were allowed to wear, what colors you were allowed to wear, for example, or not, depending on your status. Um, and so, while, while people in different places, in different eras, in different cultures wore different things, change across time and um, yeah, across time was was slow and minimal compared to what we see today, in particular. Um, so, in the, so in the pre-modern era, the realities that that people still had to wear clothes, that clothing was personal and public, that it meant things, all of that was still true. But the the choice that we face today just really wasn't known in the same way. So the rise of fashion as we know it, with its variety and its changing silhouettes and styles and trends, that really only can be said to, to start with the rise of modernity. Um, first in the early modern era with the Renaissance and the Reformation, um, with the advent of printing, printing press that allowed for mass communication for the first time. Um, and then especially with the rise of the Enlightenment, democracy, capitalism and industrialization. So sort of in starting kind of in the 18th century. So in this book that I'm going to be using a lot tonight, it's called Fashion Theology. It's a fairly new book, um, really interesting, but quite limited in its scope because it's one of the first thing, first books to even try to do this kind of thing, to bring fashion and theology together um, in this particular way. Um, so I'm going to be using this quite a lot. And Robert Cavolo notes that the word modern and many Romance languages word for fashion, la mode, for example, come from the same Latin root, the word that means presently or just now. He writes, to be modern is to feel a need to be up to date. Moderns are stricken with a sensitivity to anachronisms. In modernity, everything is coordinated in relation to time. And this concern for the new is itself relatively new, a heedfulness that did not gain expansive credence until the 18th century. The new is presumed superior in modernity. I'm going to say that last part again. The new is presumed superior in modernity. And I think it's super interesting that this bias towards the new coincides with the rise of evolutionary thought. Um, the fittest survives, so the latest must be the greatest, right? The logic is there. <clears throat> so with, with the rise then of industrialization in the, in the 19th century, there were huge advances in textile production. Um, you know, you've probably learned in social studies about like the cotton gin mm -hmm. suddenly made cotton way more profitable. Um, there were lots of advances in weaving. Um, go up to Lowell, it's so fascinating. That was the mm -hmm. center of American industrialization, industrialization and, the, um, and the textile production of this country for a long time. Dyeing, sewing machines, all of those things had huge advances in the 19th century. And it's in that century where we first see Paris rising as a fashion capital. We see the rise of the fashion magazine. We see the rise of printed patterns so that people in St. Petersburg and people in London and people in Boston could all wear the latest fashions. They could reproduce the latest fashions coming out of Paris. Um, and so you can see in this graphic <laughs> um, how women's fashion changed through that century. This goes into the 20th a little bit. Um, it's a little bit blurry, but you can kind of see silhouettes changing. This this part in the middle right here, where it's super fur below-y. Um, that's not a word, I just made that up. 
Um, that's when sewing machines started to be available to the general, you know, ordinary person. So you can make a whole lot more ruffles when you have a sewing machine. Um, so what, what, what we see here is that really for the first time in history, fashions and styles were changing as fast as every four or five years. Even, even less than that sometimes. Um, so the technological advances of the 19th century then paved the way for the mass production of the 20th century, and with that, really the advent of consumerism. Um, Jim Paul from the English Library gave a really fascinating lecture about consumerism a few years ago, and it's on the Library Ideas Library online, so I'd refer you to that, because he says a lot more than I'm going to be able to talk about tonight. Um, but what he points out, and, and what you're probably familiar with, is that in the early 20th century, companies started to realize that to remain in business, they couldn't just mass produce something because once everyone had it, then their market would be gone. Um, you know, early marketing said things like, you need something. You need a safer stove. You need a more efficient sewing machine. You need whatever. But then once everybody had the safer stove or the safer sewing machine, they didn't need what the factories were making anymore. So Jim Paul talks about this um, change where marketers started realizing we need to do something about this. And so they, so marketing strategies were kind of invented. Um, and they were, and they drew on new, new ideas that came out of psychoanalysis and Freud. How can we tap into people's subconscious? How can we tap into their desires? Not what they need actually to survive, but what they want. And how can we tell them what they want? Um, so uh, Jim Paul even quotes marketers who actually said, we need, to sift, we need to shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. <coughs> so now products were not about their utility so much. You know, what makes life better in, in the sense of, you know, safer or more hygienic, something that's for human survival, um, but more and more about their symbolic value. So if you combine that with the high-value modernity places on the new, and what do we have now? Cavolo says it this way. He says, in the 20th century, the new now logic of modern consumeristic society has reached, now in the 21st century, has reached a feverish pace of style replacement. So I'm, I'm not a fashionista or a, really up on the latest trends. I don't look at TikTok or even Instagram. Um, but for this for this lecture, I did some reading, and I came across this podca podcast blog that's about trends, and it's called The Department. Um, and friends, I've learned so much about this feverish pace of style, style replacement. It's amazing. Um, so, so 10 or 12 years ago when I was in college, it was the beginning of the end of the hipster. Um, <laughs> hipsters, hipsters were very cool. Were very cool because they were unique. So by definition, hipsters were not mainstream. And the basic principle of hipsterdom was this: if it's popular, it's not good. Um, and, and while hipsterdom has has kind of imploded because now hipster style is something you can buy at Target. So it became mainstream, so that means it died. Um, this remains a key principle of millennial and Gen Z fashion. If it's popular, it's not good. It's not cool, at the very least. 
um, which might seem counterintuitive, but just trust me, this is, this is how it works. Um, so these, the people who host this podcast, um, I was reading transcripts and, um, they wrote this and I just pardon the grammar. Some of their stuff was hard to understand because of that, but, um, this is what they wrote. Obviously, whoever sits in the teens and twenties becomes the influencer for all of the generations. So there's a lot happening in that claim, but let's accept it as it is for now. Whoever sits in the teens and 20s, whoever are teenagers and in their 20s are the trendsetters. So we're going to take a look at what Gen Z, which are people who were born in 1997 and after. Some of you are in the room. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, We're going to see what they're up to a little bit. So according to the department, they have moved into the position of super influencers for the first time. And a lot of this has to do with social media. Um, So fashion is all about the new, and Gen Zers are the newest adults that we have, actually. Um, And they've come come of age, as it were, and kind of stepped into their role. Right now what we're seeing, they've stepped into their role as their obvious role as the trendsetters. and for for one thing, that's just just a pract- kind of a practical thing. Marketers are really looking at Gen Z um, as their latest targets because they're young adults now. They they have money now, um, or they're starting to have money, and and they're really easy to reach through social media. Um, so what is going on with Gen Z style? So I'm going to read from from a post called "Those Crazy Kids: The Gen Z Aesthetics." Um, Bear with me. I tried to edit it for clarity, but you'll you'll understand what I mean in a sec. Okay. Oh, here's Gen Z. There they are on their phones. <laughs> um, okay. This is from the department. Ugly core is Gen Z's revolt against the manufactured and clinical minimal aesthetic ushered forward by the millennial generation. Gen Zers are embracing a very opposing aesthetic that has been called ugly core which is essentially purposely and intentionally consuming and visually pushing an unedited raw style, as well as wearing traditionally ugly fashion. Now, ugly core didn't come out of nowhere. Normcore was its predecessor. Normcore was an anti-fashion trend that hit its apex in 2014 and really lasted a few years. With a 90s-style, average, normal, Seinfeldian fashion aesthetic (laughs) featuring sweatshirts, mom or dad jeans, white sneakers, and Birkenstocks, and is defined as the desire to fit in rather than stand out with deep roots in nostalgia. Hipster culture had become so colonized by the mainstream that hipsters were beginning to differentiate themselves through the adoption of mainstream styles and tastes. (laughs) Adoption of mainstream styles and tastes crowded out of their own game in a world where being different was becoming the norm. Okay, do you follow that? Good, because I don't. So here, here's a graphic that this um, podcast provided to show us the difference between normcore and uglycore. Um, and <laughs> uh, yeah, so first for for some of you who may not be aware, this person representing uglycore wearing neon green here, this is Billie Eilish, and she is if, if you're not aware which I know at Liberty sometimes we really are not aware of popular <laughs> culture. Um, she's a very, very influential Gen Z pop star. 
And she's been she's been a superstar since about 2015, and she's still not old enough to drink legally. So she's very young wow. and very influential. Um, so here is what I heard out of that when I when I read that paragraph um, from the department um, as sort of the things that are happening in fashion. And I, I've added youth because these influencers are so young, these trendsetters are so young. So a huge part of what fashion is about is revolt or reaction. It's about consumption. It's about standing out and being unique. And it's about fitting in and being part of a group. It's about nostalgia, but it's also about youth and novelty. What I hope you're hearing is how exhausting it is to try to keep up with fashion when what was just in is now out, and what is out is in, and what is normal is cool, but also what's different is cool. Um, there's this trend right now called 2014 nostalgia. That wasn't that long ago. Like, how are you already nostalgic for 2014? I don't understand. Um, so, like... The world, the world of fashion is one in which if you like Ugg boots, and that's fine if you do, but personally I think that they are ugly, but if you like Ugg boots, you aren't ugly core, you're basic, and basic is not a compliment, okay? Uh, this is a world, this is a world, this is real, I'm not making things up, where moms can buy from a brand called Not Your Daughter's Jeans, but their daughters go out and buy mom jeans, <laughs> what is happening? I think underneath all of this confusion, what seems to me as confusion, is an intense conflict between uniqueness and belonging. We want to be one of, one of a kind. We don't want to be like our moms or even our older siblings. But we also want to be part of a group. We want to be part of a bigger story. And all of these values lead us to the monster's other head, which is identity construction. So in the, in the fashion books that I found at the public library, um, here are some of the kinds of things you'll read. You know how different you feel on days you throw yourself together as opposed to the days you put yourself together? Are most of your days thrown together, crawl back in bed kind of days rather than the hot dress dance all night days? Or, yes. <laughs> or some, this, this guy's a lot more serious. This guy is serious. He is an Emmy-winning costume designer. He is serious. Um, he says, authentic style is an integral personal style that allows you to attract love, claim your power, balance your energy, and reveal who you truly are by choosing the colors, clothes, and objects that express your authentic self. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Um, and one more for you. Um, Bobby Thomas says, Though we might not always realize it, we buy and wear clothes that physically represent and communicate our insights, frustrations, goals, and desires. We then carry these signifiers into a workplace, a party, or on a date. Your style speak is a louder voice than anything you might scream from a rooftop. 
You can throw yourself together or put yourself together, but with your style, you are making, or we could say you are fashioning yourself. Clothing communicates, and what it communicates, we're told, is our very selves, our identities, who we truly are. Or at least it can, or in these books will help you do it right or well. How you dress can unlock your potential, release your power, improve your life, and make you and others see who you truly are. So with the rise of Enlightenment thinking, which promoted the power of the autonomous self, our identities came to be defined not primarily by our position in society that we were born into, you know, our families, our trades, our communities, but by our individual choices. So in his lecture, Jim Paul claims, in the past, people consumed to live, to survive. Now we consume to feed the self. The nature of the goods isn't as important as the fact that they are a source of identity and meaning. The world we live in today is is splintered in so many ways, and fashion and consumerism are appealing to a very real need we have for identity, for both individuality and belonging. And things, including clothes, become material symbols of our identity. And then we end up trapped in a catch-22. As Jim Paul puts it, our unique unique identity is being produced by mass-produced goods. The department has something similar to say. They They quote this writer named Emily Friedlander who says, Neither norm core or basic culture... Don't worry about the difference. (laughs) Neither one represents a permanent solution to the problem of affirming one's individuality and uniqueness in a world where everyone is trying to do the same thing. Imprisoned as we are within a virtual ecosystem that encourages us to express ourselves by sharing the things we like. We long to be appreciated for our particularities as humans, but we're trapped in an uphill battle of having to express those particularities through things. So if, if this is unsettling so far, um, so is a closet monster. Um, also, if it's unclear, so is a closet monster. Um, but at least we have sort of a sketch of the beast with its two heads. First, fashion with its constant change and reliance on consumerism and reaction and novelty. And second, identity construction. What you wear isn't just utilitarian or just what you like. It shows everyone yourself, who you are. Deliberately or not, because of the way our culture views material things, what you like and what you consume equals who you are. And I realize that depending how, on how up on trends you are or even interested in this you are, you might, you might think that this sounds all irrelevant. So I'm going to shift a little bit to look at some of the usual questions people ask when they're choosing what to wear um, or going shopping for clothes. And these are things I've heard or gathered from people of all ages, regardless of how fashionable they are. Here is the rubric that most people that I've come across in our culture are asking or using. They're asking, is it practical? Is it comfortable and easy? And is it me? So our values, here in America at least, even among those of us who think that we don't think about fashion at all, tend to be practicality, comfort, and in attention to fashion notwithstanding, identity and personality. 
even very unfashion conscious people will be heard to say that is not something I would wear. So it's still about me and who I am. I grew up in South Asia, and I also worked there as an adult, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about clothes, and living in a different culture helped me think about whether there might be another rubric or different rubrics out there, other operative questions that could frame how we think about clothes. And I can say, I can say pretty confidently that in South Asia where I lived, practicality, comfort, and personality were not the top values when it came to choosing an outfit. They were definitely considerations, but they weren't the top ones. Um, And realizing that helped me think about the question, what would it look like for Christians to face the monster with a distinct rubric? A distinct rubric that starts right on the monster's turf, the turf of identity. In Fashion Theology, Cavolo says, a strong sense of the good is pivotal for being a self. Having all the right clothes for all the right places is to gain the imaginative world but lose one's soul. So where is that sense of the good to be found? How are we going to keep our souls, keep ourselves? So in in several of his letters to early churches, the Apostle Paul is passionate to communicate what it means for believers to be in Christ. What is is this new kind of community? Um, What does being in Christ entail? And he uses all kinds of images to help us understand that. He talks about new creation and rebirth. He talks about people who are far away coming near. He talks about being grafted in, union, marriage, adoption, lots of images like that, including changing clothes. So first here, we have Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Let's see if I can read it from here. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice how this is all about identity and community. Who are you, you plural, Galatians? You are all sons of God. All the things that differentiated you from each other before, differences that in the first century would have been immediately apparent by what someone was wearing, those differences don't divide you anymore because you've all changed clothes. Um, and we, uh, This isn't explicitly in this passage, but consider this. Jesus, in the, in, in the Incarnation put on our flesh so that we could put on him. You have all gotten dressed into Christ, the son of God, Paul is saying here in this passage. There's similar images in Colossians 3, 9 through 12. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Who are you, Colossians? 
God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. New selves that are being renewed in knowledge and the image of their creator. Once again, we see that the social, cultural, and linguistic differences that uh, were between people don't define them anymore. Rather, Christ, our creator, does. We've taken off our old selves like an old coat and put on a new one. And then out of that identity, all of these virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, and patience, will further clothe us. One more passage for you here. This is Romans 13, 12 through 14. We see very similar things. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the flesh. Same thing. Christian behavior springs out of the reality of being holy, oops, sorry, lost my thought, of being clothed with Christ. The clothing comes first, behavior comes out of that. Um, In the context of these passages, especially this last one from Romans, um, the broader context is about how do we live together in unity as believers. And all three of these epistles as a whole make it clear that our identity as believers is not about being lone rangers. Instead, it's an identity of unity with Christ and unity with other believers, um, an identity where we belong to Christ and belong to other believers. We're a people with a story and a history. Our identity as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, is that of a community which in turn loves God and loves its neighbor. There is so much more that could be said about these passages. Um, But what I want us to lay down as a foundation from them before we move into the last part of this lecture, the new rubric that I want to offer you, um, is this. We don't have to throw ourselves together or put ourselves together, piecing together something from the material things our culture offers us. Of course, we can like things and have preferences, but we don't have to find our identities there. We've been given an identity. We aren't naked and alone. And I think it's so lovely that God seems to know that we so easily get our identities from what we wear because he gives us this image multiple times. We have been clothed with Christ. So if our core identity is settled in him, then we can stop being anxious about defining ourselves in terms of norm core or cottage core or ugly core or weird core or goblin core, whatever core, or whatever aesthetic or whatever stuff you like or buy. We can think about clothing with a new rubric or a wider rubric. So, so far, I've shown you pictures of some celebrities um, that you may have seen on TV or on on social media, but uh, I'm going to use some photos now of some more local celebrities. So a wider rubric. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about that after. Um, So a wider rubric than the three considerations I mentioned earlier, practicality, comfort, and personality. So those are good things to think about, practicality, comfort, and, and personality, but they aren't the only good things. So I would like us to consider 
some new categories when facing the question of what to wear. And these are categories of honor, beauty, and hope. First, honor. (laughs) This isn't a word that we use a lot in the West, but I learned to notice it as a high value in South Asian culture. And then I started to notice how much the Bible uses the language of honor. Honor, glory, dignity, and then the opposites, shame and disgrace. In the Bible, the first clothes were given as a gift from God to replace the insufficient fig leaves that Adam and Eve tried to use to cover up their shame. We talk about the first clothes a lot, but do you know what the second clothes that God gave were? It was more like a pattern, but still. The second clothes that God gives is the pattern for the priest's clothes in Exodus. And Exodus 29.2 says, it's God speaking to Moses, and he says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So beyond just covering mankind's shame, kind of neutralizing that negative, as it were, the priest's clothes are a positive good, a gift of a new identity, a new role, an honored position. So when we think about honor, we might, we might think about respect, right? So much of contemporary fashion is designed to communicate, I don't care. I mean, just think about the faces, mm-hmm. the expressions, yeah. rather, of models on a catwalk. Yeah. I think they communicate, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what you think. I don't care if I look like I just rolled out of bed. I don't care if I look like I'm perpetually working out. I don't care if I look like I don't have a washing machine. Um, That's what so much of contemporary fashion is about, communicating. Um, But honor is about caring. Respect is about caring. Does how we dress show that we respect ourselves? That we see ourselves as holy and dearly loved? that we actually care about the bodies that we have? Does it show that we respect others? Maybe even those that fashion particularly revolts against. Does it show that we respect our elders or our parents? Does the way we dress show that we respect the occasion and the role that we have within that occasion? People people don't dress for dinner anymore. Um, And there's probably a lot of really good reasons for that. Um, But our culture has become so casual the other direction that it probably doesn't even enter our minds that maybe, maybe, wearing a grubby sweatshirt to dinner might communicate disrespect to the person who worked really hard to make that dinner. Or that maybe wearing athleisure clothes to class might communicate contempt for the rigors of the subject matter, for the preparation that the teacher put into the lesson for the diligence of the fellow students in the room. And that's not to say that people who dress this way deliberately decide, I'm going to be disrespectful today. It comes from a rubric where comfort is the first thing. But what if honor was higher on the list? Honor also has to do with appropriateness, with what is fitting for that occasion. And and that occasion doesn't just mean, like, an occasion, like a wedding or something, but, like, showing up to dinner, showing up to class, showing up to piano recital. And here's where I'm going to say a tiny word about modesty. 
Modesty has to do with so much more than how much skin you're showing and how tight your jeans are, even though those are important things to think about. But modesty also has to do with the virtues of humility and moderation. Modesty and moderation have something in common there. Um, And the Bible has quite a lot to say about those virtues in relation to clothes. So, for example, in James, we we hear uh, James saying, really scolding churches that differentiate between people who are finely clothed versus people who aren't. They give the person who has nice clothes a nice seat, and the person who doesn't have nice clothes has to sit on the floor. This is a problem. In another place, and just another example, in in the first letter to Timothy, Paul talks, the, the bigger context is a lot about respectability and temperance among church leaders, it talks, he talks a lot about contentment and the dangers of loving money. And in that is where we hear the word modesty um, in the Bible, where he, ta- he advises women not to dress ostentatiously to display their wealth. That's where it talks about like not wearing gold and fine jewelry and braiding your hair and those kinds of things. Uh, it might be a familiar passage to some of you. So what, what I'm asking here, I guess, is what is appropriate for a follower of Jesus, Jesus who didn't consider the riches of equality with God something to be grasped onto, but made himself nothing. How do we show that our identity is grounded in that reality? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think that that's something worth pondering. Another piece with honor is when we start thinking about honoring ourselves and others with what we wear, we can think about clothing in terms of hospitality, something that we talk a lot about at Liberty. Christians have not been given a uniform. It's not, there's nothing in the Bible that's like, you must wear X, Y, and Z uh, so that we can stand out as some sort of particular, pious, separate, unapproachable group of people. So in in fashion theology, Cavolo is draw, draws on Aquinas' writings, actually, and he, and he says there that, drawing on Aquinas says, dress should work like a hospitable speech act, our, a sartorial savoir-faire by which Christians welcome, acknowledge, and draw close to others. So savoir-faire just means you know what to do, you know what, how to do the appropriate thing in a, in a situation. So let me read that again. Dress should work like a hospitable speech act, a sartorial savoir-faire by which Christians, by which Christians welcome, acknowledge, and draw close to others. This is what Jesus did. Cavolo says, God in Jesus of Nazareth enters the warp and woof of the world. Jesus did not exist as a trans-historical figure safely residing outside the cultural practices of his day. He participated in the very real social world of the first century. And so, too, we have to consider how do we participate in this very real social, cultural world of the 21st century. Um, Edith Schaefer, in her book, The Hidden Art of Homemaking, she talks about fitting in with those around us. She says, this is especially important if one is a Christian who really wants to communicate with other people. Oddness or incongruity of dress can erect petty but damaging barriers to communication. Clothing communicates meaning. And does what we are wearing communicate that we care? That we care about more than labels or styles, but we also care about the culture and climate that we find ourselves in, about the people that we find ourselves with. 
Does it show that we value respect? That we are people who, as it says in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Next on our rubric, beauty. Started out by talking a little bit about ugly core. Um, Along with communicating I don't care, a lot of contemporary trends hold this truth to be (laughs) self-evident. Ugliness is more authentic, more real than beauty. And even for those who don't intentionally, you know, subscribe to that or intentionally embrace ugliness, sometimes we just give up trying, (laughs) I think. We're content to just throw ourselves together, and we don't positively embrace beauty. But think back to that verse from Exodus. God gave the priests their robes not just for honor, but also for beauty. God, who is the faithful and true, the only one who comprehends all of what's really real, is deeply invested in beauty. Let's see here. Cavolo talks about this idea of a beautiful dress, but he, he uses the phrase joyful dress. And he draws on, and this might be surprising to some of you, he draws on John Calvin. (laughs) <laughs> for this idea. Um, here's what Cavolo says, kind of summarizing what he's gleaned from John Calvin. John Calvin saw dress as a gift from God's hand, something that God did not have to give, but chose out of God's abundant kindness. It follows that, for Calvin, believers were to celebrate the cooperation of color and form associated with beautiful dress. In so doing, humanity reveled in the one who gives good gifts. Moreover, by Calvin's logic, Christians were, when possible, to dress in a way that moved beyond the merely functional to handsome attire that inspires gladness and gratitude. In a similar vein, Edith Schaefer again, um, talks a lot about the the really well-known passage in Matthew 6 where where Jesus tells us to not worry about what we wear. And she points out that Jesus refers his hearers to the flowers of the field. And here's what she writes. She says, God, the creator, designer, and artist, was also the first dress designer. Yes, we can see the kind of clothing God designs when we look at the flowers. Is there any reason why a child of the one who designed, created, brought forth, and clothed the flowers should set out to look ugly and drab? (laughs) Are we representing him by being unattractive? So we have under beauty, we're we're talking about joy and gratitude and attractiveness. Um, The Catholic Church issued a publication about 15 years ago called Via Pulchritudinis, or the Way of Beauty. And here's some some of what they say about beauty. They say, the Via Pulchritudinis can open the pathway for the search for God and disposes the heart and spirit to meet Christ, who is the beauty of holiness incarnate. It invites contemporary Augustans, unquenchable seekers of love, truth, and beauty, to see through perceptible beauty to eternal beauty, with fervor and with fervor discover holy God, the author of all beauty. So this idea of seeing through perceptible beauty to eternal beauty to God himself is the idea of an icon. Icon, which comes from the Greek word, Icon (laughs) is the word that our New Testaments translate as image. Just like in that Colossians passage that we read about the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. 
And there's a sense, and this, this merits a whole lecture of its own, but um, and there probably are lectures on this. Um, but there's a sense in which we are icons of God. We're made in the image of God. We are icons of God. Beautiful images through which others can glimpse eternal beauty, the beauty of God. Um, the Via Pulchritudinus document also quotes a 20th century Russian martyr who commented on Matthew 5.16, which is the verse that talks about letting your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this um, poet was commenting on that and wrote, your good deeds does not really mean good acts in the philanthropic and moral sense. The Greek phrase means beautiful acts, luminous and harmonious revelations of spiritual personality. Above all, a luminous face, beautiful of a beauty that lets the interior light of men shine forth to the outside. That is when, beaten by this irresistible light, men give glory to the celestial father and his image shines over all the earth. A luminous face. Do you know what that means? Do you know what we mean when we say someone's face lights up? We mean that they're smiling, that their eyes sparkle, right? And do we dress in such a way that lets our faces shine? Our actual faces, not metaphorical faces. These ones. The ones that you're all looking at me with. Do we dress in such a way that lets our faces shine? Or are we like Violet in The Incredibles with a hunched posture and hair covering half of her sullen face? She needs a transformation. She's also reading a beauty magazine right here. I think it's so interesting. Um, Do we dress in a way that draws attention to our beautiful faces that we hope and pray are icons pointing to the beautiful face of Christ? Or does what we wear distract from that deep beauty that is there? Um, and it could distract in many ways. There are a lot of a lot of other things we could talk about in terms of beauty and dress. Um, the beauty of diversity in dress, in clothing. Um, Cavolo talks about Abraham Kuyper, who was um, a 19th century theologian and, and cultural commentator. And, and Kuyper... Really, he was Dutch, and he bemoaned how the uniform fashion of men's black suits that was coming out of Paris, it was spreading out of Paris along with secular democracy, actually, quite quite parallel. Um, and it was, dis- it was extinguishing the beauty and diversity of Europe's traditional historic national costumes. It's really interesting. Um, we could talk about that. We could talk about the beauty of color, of workmanship, of care, how, how beauty leads to care more broadly. Um, and we can definitely talk more about that in, in the discussion afterwards. But for now, the last thing on our rubric, hope. There's a big, um, there's a big push across our culture right now to dress sustainably. I think a good push um, as, as people are understanding more and more about how fast fashion, how mass production really devastates our environment and is really awful for so many workers around the world. And um, brand ethics are becoming a really important value to consumers. Um, the Department Podcast talks about this, that there's, there's potentially even a major shift happening in our culture. These podcasters claim that where the government held most of the responsibilities to enact change, companies are now expected to by millennial and Gen Zers. Millennials and Gen Zers. 
Consumers expect that brands will act and advocate on the personal and societal issues that affect their lives. Sustainability is literally the hottest trend in brands right now. And this, this sort of sounds like good news, but I think the problem here is that consumerism is still driving the bus. Um, sustainability is just another trend. Shopping at thrift stores is fashionable right now. Making your own clothes is cool right now. Um, but for how long? We know how this fashion thing works. Um, and brands are going to be the ones that save us. That seems counterintuitive to me. Um, because don't they just want our money? I'm not sure. Maybe that's cynical. Um, <laughs> the same article uh, ends with this statement. Instead of donating money directly to causes they care about, shoppers under 40 prefer to give back through where they shop. When I read that for the first time, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> what? Shoppers under 40 give back through where they shop, so they give back by buying more. Um, so as much as a lot of younger millennials and Gen Z claim to be anti-capitalist, they're still defining themselves by what they like, by what they wear, by what they buy, by who they buy from. Um, sustainability is still clutched in consumerism slimy grip, and that's a monster if I ever heard of one. So is there another way? Cavolo talks about the possibility of Christians dressing prophetically. And, and here, he surveys all kinds of theologians. It's really interesting. But here he, re- he relies on the works of Karl Barth. And he says, Barth called Christians to acknowledge and confront dark forces that twist creation and exploit workers by capitalizing on human weakness and vanity. Do we, like many in the broader culture, want to stand against environmental degradation and the exploitation of workers around the world? Yes, I think so. But to me, it just seems to show quite a profound lack of imagination um, to think that that stand can be made by shopping more. Um, I know I just talked about the beauty of color, but maybe some of us are called to be the man in black, like Johnny Cash sang about, visually showing solidarity with those who are poor and oppressed through our clothes. If you don't know that song, you should check it out. (laughs) Christians are called to be salt and light. Salt, a preservative in the face of decadence. And decadence doesn't mean rich chocolate cake. Uh, It has the same roots as the word decay. In a materialistic society where identity comes from stuff, where we have been shaped to be consumers, maybe being salt means having less stuff. Maybe it means learning how to care care well for and repair the stuff that we have. Maybe it means resisting fashion's impulses towards excess, objectification, constant novelty, over-sexualization, ugliness, and decay. It's going to take imagination to figure out what that looks like. The prophetic role, however, doesn't just involve resistance, but it it also involves hope. Cavolo writes, the theme of the close relationship between dress and the desire for glory is a common one among the theologians he surveys. 
He quotes N.T. Wright, who wrote, Clothes are a sign of hope that we know deep down that we are to be more fully clothed, more fully and truly ourselves in God's ultimate future. Here is where beauty and honor tie back in. As Christians, we can act out our anticipation of glory by dressing with honor and beauty, by resisting our culture's impulses to decay and excess. And then when we next face the question of what to wear, maybe instead or in addition to asking about practicality and comfort and personality, perhaps we can begin by asking, is it honorable? Is it beautiful? Is it hopeful? The authors of the Via Pulchritudinis statement ask, is not kitsch culture, that's so hard to say, is not kitsch culture, and we could add ugly or ironic aesthetics, is not kitsch culture a typical outcry of those living in fear of responding to a call to undergo a profound transformation? What transformation are we as our generation afraid of? Again, the Via Pulchritudinus authors write, The coming of the Redeemer reestablishes man in his first beauty. Moreover, it redresses him in new beauty, the unimaginable beauty of the creature raised up to divine sonship, the transfiguration promised by the soul ransomed and lifted up by grace, resplendent in all its fiber, the body called to new life. Is there any profounder transformation than the one we undergo when we are brought to life in Christ? Than when we put off the old self and are clothed with Christ? Is there any profounder transformation than that for which we hope, the transformation of resurrection? What would it look like for us to face the monster in the closet? with that in mind. I'm going to end here and uh, open up for questions, um, comments, discussion. Um, If you need to leave, you're also free to go now. You're welcome to go. If you want to see what some of the things I referenced, here are some sources. Peter. Uh, right at the beginning, you, you mentioned, you know, we don't dress for Darren, but given sort of the broad scope of your talk, uh, I couldn't help but think of, and, and this is, you know, I'm guilty of it, I guess, as anyone here, we no longer dress for church. Yeah. You know, we, we dress... You know, you're a skateboarder, you're going to this, you're going to that. Uh, it's whatever seems to suit the moment, so, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, you know, whereas uh, growing up, you know, I was dressed in coat and tie, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I went to a church where the ushers wore morning coats. And mm-hmm. So it was rather formal. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm thinking, you know, that that is a theological statement right there mm-hmm. uh, of maybe lack of honor, lack of respect, lack of whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I also, you know, this would take it in a different direction. But you mentioned the uh, 
the, the clothing of the Levitical priests mm-hmm. uh, for glory and uh, glory and beauty. Uh, I think it's in Ezekiel where it talks about the, the beauty of the temple, which is supposed to result in repentance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, church architecture is something that we've just kind of spat on, uh, you know, for the past you know, few hundred years, uh, creating these monstrosities rather than, <laughs> uh, you know, the spires of the Gothic cathedrals of old, which were designed to last forever, and mm-hmm. were supposed to sort of lift ourselves up, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to you know, lift our eyes up. And so I, I find that uh, this topic is, you know, as, as you point out, could go down many different venues, so I'm, I'm really grateful for, for, for what it is that, that you've been able to do with this. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, to address what you said first about dressing for church, um, in in part of my research that didn't didn't make it into this final lecture, um, there are a lot of churches that have statements about clothing on their websites. It's so interesting, yeah, to see what different churches have said about dressing for church, and it's it's usually quite particular to where they are. Um, and, and yeah, what kind of climate and, and culture that they're in. I mean, in, in America, mostly is what I looked at. But um, yeah, there were people who they had a very had very articulate um, statements about what they kind of expected. Like so, so sometimes it was like a an FAQ thing of like, is there a dress code? You know, of someone who maybe wants to visit, um, or or sometimes it was more like, here's why you know. Pastor Bob is not wearing a suit anymore. Or, you know, not really. It wasn't like that, but um, but sort of. It seemed like an apologetic a little bit. It was interesting to see how different people addressed that question. So, if you're interested in a little Google trail, um, that's something to look up. Like what different churches are saying about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marty. Well, it, that's it's striking because for minority members of the black church, people dress up in the black oh, yes. church. Mm-hmm. People really do dress up. There at the same time, they're. They're very welcoming. Like when we bring the Bree students along who are not dressed up, mm-hmm. they're very welcoming. Yeah. But it's it's quite um, striking. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was, for several years, I sang in one of the six choirs in our church, which before COVID there were six choirs. Yeah. And next, I sat next to another soprano um, who talked to me about um, her, she dressed very nicely, she had very nice clothes, and she just said, no, my great-grandparents were slaves, and they had work clothes. Um, they tried to have something a little special for Sunday for when slaves would, who were free to be able to go and worship together. But she just talked about, about the role of clothing in middle-class black mm-hmm. culture as having a, just... Their history mm-hmm. being a big a big part of why dress was important, mm-hmm. and there are some some women in our church who just have an amazing sense of style mm-hmm. and just gorgeous color and style. And, mm-hmm. But people dress up in the black church, mm-hmm. so that's it's different from the very informal yeah. white middle class mm-hmm. kind of churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joshua. Uh, just a uh, question. Well, first of all, thank you. I You're welcome. Really with this. Um, I'm just curious, as maybe uh, is Cavolo, is that mm-hmm. a Cavolo, yeah, or even yourself, 
just any thoughts on um, there wasn't a direct criticism but like a critical edge towards that ever newness of fashion mm-hmm. and when I also think of high fashion I just think of um, it's elite, it's impractical it's uh, it's making some sort of statement but it's not clear what the statement mm-hmm. is at least to me like, and, um, yeah I'm just curious if either you or him Book. Is there a place for Christ- Christians in sort of the high, the high, high fashion, fashion world? <laughs> like in, yeah, that's a good what question. What does that look like, or what does that? Like? Yeah, he he does talk a little bit about high fashion. It's not a chapter that I gave a ton of attention to because that wasn't the direction I was going. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, I mean, from my perspective, I think talking about high fashion coincides with how. And how Christians can and, and should engage with that is a, is a very similar to the conversation about high art because that's what high fashion is. It's not really about clothes to wear, though there are those lines. Like every designer has their ready to wear line too. But um, sometimes I'm like, how ready to wear is exactly. that? Um, <laughs> ready for who to wear? But um, <laughs> but I think like the really yeah kind of elite. It is very much like high art, which similarly, I mean, I think as a Christian, I have similar questions about um, what is this for? Why is beauty not part of the equation at all? Um, I think that that's that's all part of that conversation, which I'm not as familiar with, but I think it is a similar conversation. Mm Yeah. What is Goblin Core? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know, and I don't know. How can I get into it? <laughs> so, and if you want to know, you're not. You're not. I can tell you that for sure. So, if you're interested in the cores, there's a website that I've not been on, but the Atlantic had an article about it called Aesthetics Wiki, and you can find all the cores and also all the academias and all the. What's the other one? Maybe you know. There's another one. It's like, oh, what's the word? It's not a vibe. I don't remember what it is. But there's another category of aesthetics that you can fall into, and that's not just about clothing. It's like about your whole. It's your brand, and it might just be what exists online, or it might be real yeah. life. Like, there's, like, honey core, which means you like bees and yellow and you try to be kind to people, I think, is what it means. I'm not really sure. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no stinging. It's just an aesthetic, yeah. so, yeah. 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 Don't ask. <laughs> there's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Ben. Yeah, just, just uh, in line with what Joshua's question about high fashion, I, I know absolutely nothing about it, but um, it, did, it did strike me a number of years ago during a, a lecture on um, art versus craft, or, mm-hmm. or um, and just looking at some trends in modern art away from learning learning the very technical physical craft of what you're doing towards towards the conceptual mm. uh, and a huge privileging of the conceptual art in modern art, uh, art schools museums whatever um, and and how in a sense 
the high fashion participates in the very same thing. Yes. In a way that's almost neoplatonic. It's, it's like denying mm. the physical realities mm. of the world. Yeah. And, and in the case that's of good. fashion, de- denying the practical realities of the human body. Yeah. It's like mm. you're wearing this, this work of art, which is completely precariously balanced on your body. Um, and you would never you would never wear it while doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it's, and it is making a statement as art. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be be like condescending towards it, but, but mm-hmm. to call it clothing is just, you know, um, means that at least to some degree you're taking in the very physical, practical realities of human, the human body. And there's right. a purpose for this. It's not just uh, for the sake of aesthetic contemplation. It has a use. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's something that, that um, is a division between between sort of high art and what's yeah. considered low art or craft mm-hmm. is that craft has a use and that's obviously lower you know whereas high art is what you put on the wall in a museum and you just go and look at it it doesn't do anything mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. go and look at it um, it seems to me that that at least it's, it's very little that I know mm-hmm. <laughs> about, about high fashion good. it's like I don't think the needs of the human body were, were considered mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, how do you sit down in that? <laughs> you know. It's a runway. You're just walking and you walk back, and then you disappear behind the stage. Yeah, yeah. If I may just address that, uh, and this comes from one of my students who's in the fashion industry, and and he's pointed out that a lot of what we see during Fashion Week in Milan or New York, whatever, is experimental. It's mm-hmm. kind of like prototype cars. Mm-hmm. It's uh, their attempts at seeing what can we do mm-hmm. with some of the material and, and some of the mm-hmm. uh, inspirations and whatever. Everyone knows this is not what you're going to, to see on the street. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it is yeah. just sort of allows these creators to, if you will, play. Right. And, uh, and sort of uh, show what they're up to. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it makes sense as, as like, as art, but not as craft necessarily, or like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you were going to talk about like, yeah, you, you know, you actual usefulness of, of wearing, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's there's a difference there. Just, I'm just following one of my great heroes is, uh, and, and basically all I ever know I know about fashion is that the character of Edna Mole in the first Incredibles movie, yep, he's yep. the fashion designer, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. sick of designing for supermodels because she's designed for the superheroes, mm-hmm. and she has. Totally cares about aesthetics and the glamour and the beauty of something, but it's very practical also. Yes. It's like, mm-hmm. no cakes allowed <laughs> because you're going to die if you wear a cake. Yep. Anyway, that's all I yep. <laughs> yeah, um, I was really interested in the, the picture you, ha- you showed early on of all these women's fashions, these massive mm-hmm. bustles, talking about mm-hmm. not being able to sit down and all this stuff. <laughs> and it was really interesting how in, in first wave feminist movement, mm-hmm. there was a whole... Um, there were a group of radicals who were really fighting for a more free female dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bloomers, mm-hmm. pants, rather than, mm-hmm. and it, and they were so um, mocked, scorned, etc. That Elizabeth Cady Stanton, though she believed in it, because the kind of clothes that women were expected to wear were were horrible. Mm-hmm. They were really constricting and bulky, and you couldn't work in them, and so on. But she just said, well, we were, it's not worth the battle. I mean, she and other ones decided it just wasn't worth yeah. fighting for bloomers 
Um, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, because they were fighting for other more important issues. They were being mm-hmm. they were being so mocked and not listened to, written off because mm-hmm. they were um, trying to bring about dress reform for women mm-hmm. to make the women able to actually move around and mm-hmm. walk and do things and yeah. So, but they but they sort of gave up and said, no, you know, we've got we're going to fight for for property mm-hmm. right, you know, married women's property rights mm-hmm. and against white beating and all these other things which are actually more important than than being uncomfortable in our clothes. So that was put off for a while <laughs> until maybe the 1920s, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you look at those, how, how, oh my goodness. It's so interesting though. So the way this goes is like down and then up again because yeah, I couldn't get them all in a row. But um, like look at that silhouette. It's like, normal and then it goes whoo really far out and then it comes back again a hundred years later how did you sit down they were squishy they were squishy yeah but still it was like sitting on a pillow must puff up in the front they have to go so much we can talk about fashion history later (laughs) yeah Michaela. this is an observation of recently the rise of gender neutral clothing um that look almost robotic, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and or and or like robotic in that it's a uniform, mm-hmm. it's very quote unquote gender neutral, but it is reminiscent almost of um, like slave, like what? It's like mm-hmm. slave, but like oh. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? In um, very very bland mm-hmm. and almost um, maybe not slave clothing but um, sort of cult like mm-hmm. cult. or like yeah what did, did you say prison clothes then yeah, just, yeah. Just mm-hmm. and I, it is interesting <coughs> in just that sense of wanting to make something something free to make a choice being an individual who actually mm-hmm. are Yeah, I think that's part of that, like, pull that, that, like, I mean, and this is just, I mean, like, since 2014 <laughs> or 2012, whatever, like, this pull and push back and forth between, like, wanting to stand out but also wanting to blend in and then just, like, swinging back mm-hmm. and forth, like, not being mainstream, but then it becomes mainstream, so then you can't do that anymore, so then what do you do? Like, what are you left with? Um, and all of it is, uh, one of the words that Cavolo uses a lot is, like, bricolage or, like, pastiche, like, everything you just, like, grab from here and there. So why not grab from, like, you know, a prison jumpsuit or, or whatever? Um, there's, it's not defined in terms of, of space or place or people, you know, in terms of community. Um, it, it's sort of become this sort of collage something that's, that then is almost nothing, like you're saying. I think you're right. No, that's just. <laughs> I don't know. No, I would say like in the, in the earlier teens, twenty teens. I don't know. I mean, what what did happen was the young the youngest millennials were adults for the first time, and Gen Z was like 
getting into high school and starting to be able to make more of those choices. So, so that's what they're referencing. Like the people who are writing these blogs and stuff are millennials or Gen Zers, and that's what they're. That's when they first were like starting to think about these kinds of things, actually. Oh, you know, that's so one of the few places in our culture where there's still quite a very like quite a strong understanding of what is appropriate and what's mm-hmm. not appropriate is at a funeral mm-hmm. um yeah. usually <laughs> not always yeah. um yeah sarah did you have an idea about that yeah i was thinking like uh children's performances like when we go to lessons and carols we dress up mm-hmm. because they put a the way we come to, as an audience, mm-hmm. um, is acknowledging the significance of the work they've done. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I also just want to say I love everything about this lecture. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think usually other contexts that have additional level of ceremony mm-hmm. that come with them graduations where we've retained that yeah yeah where there's some kind of ceremony you're right that's where we've retained like oh it's not okay to be a casual now mm-hmm. so one one thing that i can say is like in south asian culture um i wouldn't wear what i was wearing at home to go visit a friend mm-hmm. i would dress up to go to their house um not like dress up dress up like i would for a wedding or something but i would like change my clothes make sure it was ironed you know was like a newer outfit or something, not like what I was just cooking in. Um, and and that was like culturally very important to show that I was like honoring their space, that they had, t- you know, were making time for me, even if they were a really close friend still. Um, that was like part of that culture. And I, I just wonder what would happen to our interactions if we thought more like that. Um, if we showed care, we, we wore our care, um, Instead of just speaking it or or whatever, I, I just I just wonder what would happen. I think I think that's really good, and I think that's definitely showing the love of neighbor. I also think there's another side of that, which is like, because I grew up with a similar culture of like, it's kind of the same thing of like, if people are coming over, we need to clean the house. 
And so it's like if I'm going to go visit other people, I need to clean up. But it's more of a sense of, of hiding ugliness rather than caring for somebody else's beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think there's two sides to that as well because I, I grew up in, in Grand Rapids, which is a very Christianish culture, mm-hmm. and it's a very much like this is how we look to other people, and it can be really superficial in its mm-hmm. judgmentalness. Mm-hmm. And so your appearance can be a part of an effort to avoid judgment and also to avoid being vulnerable with other people um, because of showing what your house looks like, really, or right. what you look like, really. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think there's a balance, but the heart does have to be for your neighbor mm-hmm. and not for yourself, because I think, obviously, dressing can be a very self-involved Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point, that, like, what what would it look like if it was, yeah, for love of neighbor, not for one's own vanity or, yeah. Um, but also recognizing that, like, it's not inauthentic to have a clean house. You know, like, to, to say, so that the, the principle that then, like, well, authentic, authenticity means it's ugly and dirty and gross. It's like, well, just because you, like, weren't born wearing clothes doesn't mean it's inauthentic to wear clothes, you know? Or just because you, like, woke up that way doesn't mean you shouldn't brush your hair, right? Like, because um, it would be inauthentic. It's like, that just doesn't doesn't make right, sense. It's part of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the distinction I've made is when you clean your house that when you walk into somebody else's house, you'd be like, oh, their house is dirty. When that's the reason you clean your own house, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a problem. But anyway, yes. Yeah. Michaela. Um, in high school, on sports day, on game day, everybody dressed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like whatever team had a game that day, mm-hmm. you dressed up. Mm-hmm. And the, the football coaches and the soccer coaches I remember this my freshman year. They took all of the team, the boys, and said, we're going to teach you how to iron a shirt mm-hmm. and tie a tie. So on game day, you're going to come with a shirt mm-hmm. iron and wear a tie. And the coaches would provide ties that the boys would have ties. <laughs> and <laughs> it, was, it, it changed the way they felt mm-hmm. about the, even the team. Mm-hmm. Like, there was, like, a different tone to that. Mm-hmm. To, like, and then it just, I mean... I, it was already set when I got to high school, but mm-hmm. on game days, no matter what sport you play, you can dress up. Yeah, that's a good example of that. Yeah, Ben? So I think this, these are all interesting examples, but there's also, like, most examples we mentioned are, are like, a specific event, which, mm-hmm. which like you were saying, Cheyenne, like, has ceremony yeah. attached to it. Um, and those, it's almost like the honoring of those events uh, are, are what has um, enabled the, the significance of dress to be maintained, you know, um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a show of honor and respect. Um, but I feel like something that you're, you're talking about is just a much more ordinary, daily, routine mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. How would I dress to honor somebody? It's not. It's not. You're not. There's not. There's not an, an event or a ceremony imposing anything on you. It's just mm-hmm. a much more um, intentional way of living and thinking about what you what you wear in order mm-hmm. to to say yeah to express respect for somebody's house that you're going to or something like that. And that that's it's interesting to me that, that uh, how how different the mindset is in South Asia and, we're, mm-hmm. we're, and presumably lots of other places like, I don't mm-hmm. know much, but um, 
I, as somebody who, yeah, culturally, culturally speaking, I feel that like men's fashion and what what a, what a man would decide to put on in the morning is, is just a little bit. People can correct me if they disagree. I don't know. Um, just fewer options mm-hmm. to how to sort of express something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and, and so like, I love I love everything that you said. Um, about how clothing can, you can you can choose what you wear in order to respect, in order to show honor, in order to. Um, but I also look at my wardrobe and think, how, what is particularly distinct about any of it? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, and is the answer to to maybe shop more intentionally in order to have just better clothes? I don't, I don't even know. I'm just mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. just I, I I'm. As someone that does not have, and, and historically has not seemed to care very much about what I wear, uh, um, and, and you got that. Well, no, I do. No, I do. No, I do. I do actually care. You know, I, I, I do. I do. I do actually care. And also, to, and, and, and there is an element of like wanting to look like you don't care, which is caring. Yeah. Um, so that that's just total hypocrisy mixed in. But. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I, in terms of a practical next step, in terms of how mm-hmm. to apply some of this, I'm, I'm a little bit at a, at a loss. Like, what, mm-hmm. what shirt would I? Wear? I mean, I have some nice, nicer shirts. I could, yeah. But um, mm-hmm. don't you have a blazer collection that is never <laughs> seen? A couple blazers. Yeah. I heard that there's a blazer collection. <laughs> Clothes with Christ every day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. Yeah, Sarah. Collection. Uh, I have funny T-shirts. Have this isn't about. This isn't about giving me advice. I'm sorry. No, 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 <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you're right that it is quite radical, and and yeah, it's cha- I mean it's certainly challenging to me, like personally, to think that way too, because so yeah, you're right. So much is about like what are people going to think about me, um, which it's it's not necessarily wrong to think that, um, but I think that's all we tend to focus on, um, or or like am I comfortable? 
not like, are the people around me comfortable? Um, because, because, like I said, clothing is bizarrely, extremely personal and super public. Um, kind of unlike anything else we do. Yeah, following from that, it just is making me realize that it, it's quite relativized in the sense that if you're thinking, if, if you're thinking of showing respect or honor for a friend, mm-hmm. then it might mean actually that for that friend you need to dress down, right? Mm-hmm. Not right. dress up. Mm-hmm. You might make them feel really uncomfortable by, mm-hmm. by dressing up, and yeah. they might feel very uncomfortable. You know, just that it makes it—it's just a different way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. What what will be hospitable to this particular friend may be very different. It's sort of Paul saying, "I've become all things to, to the Jews. I've become as a Jew. To the Greeks, mm-hmm. I've become as a Greek." Yeah. So that your your identity is, if it's your identity is secure in Christ, mm-hmm. you ought to be able to have much more freedom in how you dress in different settings yeah. for yeah. the good of the people that you're mm-hmm. seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But then you you know, but that could very well be dressing down mm-hmm. very much. You know, I was just yeah. struck by we were at, we did some grocery shopping and then went to Starbucks. Um, after church last week, and and I mean I see this often, but there was a woman buying coffee, literally in her pajamas and her bedroom slippers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, you I mean I see that quite often, mm-hmm. um, you know flannel pajamas and bedroom slippers yep. buying her coffee. Oh well, I don't think I would have felt comfortable doing that, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but she apparently felt comfortable, and yeah. that was her, the highest thing on her rubric. Yeah. yeah. Um, and not necessarily considering, like, these people that I'm buying the coffee from had to be here at 5 this morning and had to be wearing their uniforms. Right. And, you know, I hope they care about my coffee. Why can't I show that I care yeah. Yeah. about them, you know? And I don't know what her situation is. No, Maybe that's all she has to wear. That's yeah. also a possibility. Uh, two, two of our three sons actually have uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them loves it and wishes he could just never have to think about clothes <laughs> the rest of the time. He's a wife who buys him nice shirts for other occasions. But he would just as well be in his sort of Ranger Rick uniform as a, <laughs> as a wildlife biologist, mm-hmm. you know, out of the water. He just has great freedom in having a uniform. Mm-hmm. The other one's a state trooper. He probably doesn't want to wear that all the time. Yeah, yeah. But um, Ben has more freedom. <laughs> Did you have something, Dick? Well, just that respect has to do with expectations of mm-hmm. the people you're with. And I can just remember it's age related to that we uh, we never go to our. I never see my grandparents. It would just all scruffy lousy clothes. Mm-hmm. We'd just to, to go to see them for a meal or anything like that, it, uh, I'd have to dress up a bit somehow, mm-hmm. and that was just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, uh, and as far as I said, it, it goes the other way. I mean, every once in a while, if I at these rare moments when I get suited up with actually a suit and tie, <laughs> and then wandering through the through this house during a weekday when I would normally be in blue jeans and clothes hanging off me. <laughs> all, 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 all with these glad rags on. Everybody looks at me and say, "What? What are you doing? What are you doing? Is there a funeral? Did someone die?" It's all just such a shock that it's, uh, it's almost upsetting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, so expectation has a huge amount to do with it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so that's where, like, um, 
that savoir-faire comes in, right? Like, do we know what's appropriate for a given situation? And will we mess up sometimes? Yes, mm-hmm. probably will. Um, but but are we even paying attention that much to think, like, what might be appropriate or what might be appreciated in this situation, ordinary situation or, or, or a special occasion? Um, that's, I don't know, I think part of being a human. Do you have something, Anna? Yeah, off the same sort of thing, it's just me that, like, the dressing up or dressing down or casually, with the, the points you've made about, like, the Christian dressing rubric, like, the dressing up, dressing down is only tied to appropriateness of occasion, mm-hmm. and all the other points would apply equally to whether you, like, if you're dressing casually, you still want to dress beautifully, mm. um, and dressing up doesn't necessarily mean it's more beautiful. Right. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, you can, yeah, beauty, yeah, is sort of, like, separate from, from the category. You wouldn't, like, necessarily go, like, go up or down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, and, and that's that's a part, well, point, too, I think, related sort of to your question about men's clothing. It's, like, we don't think, like, beauty doesn't, beautiful doesn't mean pretty, necessarily, right? So, it is for men too. I mean, the priests were men. Their robes were given to them for beauty, right? Um, so I think that's something that, I don't know. I, I, I just know a lot of men who don't think like that's like not at all in the rubric at all. It's not in the room. Um, you know, and hopefully they have someone who loves them who's like, maybe don't wear that. Um, it looks weird or whatever. But... Um, <laughs> That doesn't match. Um, like really clashes. You know. You know. Hopefully, that's the case. But, um, <laughs> but what if it was something that that men were allowed to think about? You know. I think in some ways, it's, I mean, my my younger brother when he was little, if people would say he was cute, he would say, "I'm not cute. I'm ugly." <laughs> Which. It's not the opposite. <laughs> and not the only option. <laughs> like the little boy in Minari doesn't say, he's, he says, I'm not pretty, I'm good looking. It's like, oh, what if good looking was a category we had? <laughs> handsome. Yeah. Yeah, Cheyenne. Did you dig more into like rubrics of um, other cultures? Mm-hmm. Hmm. No. Something I, I like that you said, like talking about making dinner or being a, in charge of a classroom. Like when I taught online for a year, when I most of my students were just squares. Mm-hmm. Like it definitely struck me what the importance of their faces. And like as a teacher, I feel I have a right to their face. Which <laughs> um, <laughs> is deeply painful when they don't show you the respect of their face. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out I was very angry about some of my students and their behavior, which, you know, your physical appearance is communicating what you think of somebody who's speaking with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that's clothes, facial expressions, behavior, violence, like there's so many things that go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so again, this is a little bit more on the facial expression side, like, I don't know if I go into a, a, an online thing, unless it's like houses full of people, you know, in the zoo, I'm probably going to have my camera on. Because I know what it's like to be somebody who's presenting and not to have cameras on. Even mm-hmm. if I decide to leave, maybe I'll turn my camera off. But if I'm like <laughs> doing this over here, I'm like, well, at least they know I'm not listening. <laughs> so, like, they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because that's that's something that I have learned being in a position of authority that I have that responsibility to respect somebody who's in that mm-hmm. position of authority. And so, like, the online, you know, school world is, like, a whole bucket of things and meetings and all that, but, like, mm-hmm. the comfort mm-hmm. is above everything else where I just get to remove my parents so I don't have to be held accountable to someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, get out of my pajamas. Yeah, yeah, but... And, and, and so it's, like, I think there's, like, especially, like, an American culture of individuality where mm-hmm. it's, like, I'm beholden unto myself and not beholden unto another authority... Um, being in, yeah, being in that position of authority just gives me a lot more respect for that. that they're a person, they're a human being, um, and they have their vulnerabilities and insecurities, and like they they want to feel known and appreciated. And so I think, yeah, showing your face, paying attention, but what you wear too, like says, I think you matter, I think you're important, mm-hmm. and like I'm going to like respond by like smiling or nodding, you know, if I'm writing or shopping, like uh huh, yeah, like I'm giving you my face, I'm wearing my face for you because. I'm loving you. Mm-hmm. And it's, maybe I'm excited or not, but I'm going to show you that I'm listening. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anything yeah. mm-hmm. Sarah? Um, I <coughs> was thinking about how um, there were, like, colors that you wore to represent the stages of grief mm-hmm. after the death mm-hmm. that's close to you. Mm-hmm. Like, what, years ago? Mm-hmm. 20 years ago? Um... I'm, I'm both curious if you know of other uh, like things that were sort of institutions in fashion mm-hmm. or in dress to, to like communicate something to others. That one, that's a, one that's a really big one, yeah. With words. Mm. You know, like, and, and it was just understood. Oh, oh they're, they're breaking down. They're, they're wearing black. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, that in particular strikes me as such a societal loss yeah. to not have signals like that, mm-hmm. you know. And um, yeah. So anyway, I'm curious if you know if there's anything else similar to that. Yeah, that's a really good question. I yeah, morning clothes is very fascinating. I don't have it with me here, but one of the books that I checked out from the library is an etiquette book from 1898 mm-hmm. and um, he talks about that and it's like very particular rules about like how close the person who died was to you mm-hmm. what you wear for how long you mm-hmm. wear it um, if you're you know yeah like if it's a grandparent if it's a parent if it's a spouse like it's all different mm-hmm. so people could tell by looking at you mm-hmm. you know or oh they had someone close to them die but like three months ago or six mm-hmm. months ago or a year ago, like there was time markers as well. It's really interesting. Um, can you think of another example, Shane? Uh, it's a similar example, and I don't know very many details, but I have heard of something similar for like morning, but for a community or a nation after like, using a war. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a certain mm-hmm. uh, period where some rural communities in Greece would wear a black with like, a yellow scarf. Mm-hmm. And so the like, older community continued to do that decades after. Mm-hmm. 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 Did you have your hand up, Joey? Peter. Um, go, going to the hope slide for, for mm-hmm. a moment, uh, the, the idea of a... There we go. Hope of, uh, I, well, so, 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 someone there, I think, was mentioned sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, Our crowd is going down, but just by a show of hands, how many how many people here 
routinely use cobblers. Okay, what does Cobblers, yeah, sure. Oh, because I. Yeah. Cobblers, and that was I mean, I try to make a pair of dress shoes last 20 years mm-hmm. uh, by getting them resold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I notice is that you can't find shoes that can be resold these days. Right. All these molded mm-hmm. things. Right. Mm-hmm. And the quality of the right. soles, you know, even barrels and basques and these supposedly good boot makers, you know, they're, they're toys. Uh, they, you know, they wear out in a year. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and I, I just find... Too depressing. Uh, it, I mean, it seems as though, you know, in, in order to buy something that is sustainable, and, and maybe this is a good thing, it is an investment because mm-hmm. you, know, you are going to be paying more yeah. for the kinds of shoes that can be repaired. Yeah, that's right. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and which is something I'm willing to do because generally, the, you know, the more they're more comfortable, they're better made, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But uh, but but yes, I mean, even you know, most of the stuff you kind of going to this you know, just falls off of you after you know, a year or two. Yeah, yeah, and that a lot of that is actually by design because right, yeah. they need to keep their market, right? right? The mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then that's why I said like it really calls for imagination um, to figure out how how that's gonna look, um, and does that sometimes mean maybe doing without, and does it sometimes mean, what does it look like, you know? And it and it will vary from from person to person as well, and like what your your situation is, your circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit about uh, growing up in South Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the first time you noticed that there was, like, a, a difference in kind of dress code between, like, the U.S. and, like, South Asia? Like, was it kind of like, oh, look, you know, people are wearing pajamas in the streets? Or was it, like, kind of gradual? Well, where I grew up, everyone, like, no one dressed like this. Pretty much no one, not, e- not even men. Like, even though men's fashion is pretty global, it's spread with secular democracy from Paris. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bit about that in this book. Um, it's really, really interesting. But um, it's, like, totally different. So just, like, growing up, I just saw people always wearing different clothes. Um, but I think starting to notice, like, a different mindset about clothes was probably... I don't know if I could have articulated this in like middle school, but that's probably when I started thinking more about that because I had different clothes for different occasions that in some ways maybe would just look the same, but you know, like I had to change to go to someone's house or I had to, you know, ironing was really important, Hmm. very important that things are ironed in South Asia Hmm. and, and Asia in general, I think. Um, I don't think I really articulated the rubric of honor being paramount in, in South Asia, it is, um, until until I was an adult and giving a seminar on clothing in South Asia. <laughs> yeah. Actually sat down to think about what was happening. Yeah, Roscoe? Yeah, um, I don't know where this is going to go. It's just kind of, uh, you know, I think about it. But, um, so, I, I, I mean, I've worked from home, you know, COVID, work from home restrictions, it mm-hmm. kind of presented... Um, 
different opportunities for me to work among the channels. And so, not to get into the weeds, but I, I, I think that, I, yeah, it, it's just, I'm just kind of thinking through just um, the season of burnout I was in, let's say. Mm-hmm. This is, there's multiple levels to that. But I think the disintegration of, of being responsible to show up mm-hmm. in a space, mm-hmm. in a particular attire, mm-hmm. uh, played a part mm-hmm. in that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even though there's techniques and suggestions, oh, you know, you're working behind Zoom at home, just dress up. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'll put a golf shirt on and I'm in mm-hmm. my basketball shorts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I've never had put that piece together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, but, but I even see it even prior from work from home orders, you know, in, in the corporate space, you know, leadership tend, tended to just be casual, you know, and mm-hmm. very, very loose in the clothing especially from what I expected coming from more of a blue-collar background. Mm-hmm. It, it was just kind of very similar uh, in a way. And, um, yeah, dressing for the occasion as far as, like, going into mm-hmm. um, an office setting, let's say. I, I guess, yeah, that is kind of your, yeah, well, you're putting on, you're, you're clothing yourself in in hope, beauty, and whatever. Honor. Honor, which is probably the one I need to plug myself in more. But um, but no, yeah, that's interesting. It's just, yeah, um, because there was a lot of, I think, yeah, I don't know if it's despair, but um, you you, you do that for two straight years of just waking up in your PJs, frying eggs, (laughs) working in your PJs. There's no sense of yeah. of structure or accountability or occasion, yeah. and 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 it's concerning that that's the that's going to be the corporate landscape um, moving forward, and it, it'll be interesting to see um, what trends come come from that. Yeah, I think it, I I think you're hitting on something that's that's sort of. I mean, it can be like kind of a chicken and egg situation. So one of, like a marker of depression is that you don't want to get dressed in the morning. Mm. Hmm. But also not getting dressed, I'm not going to say it makes you depressed, but it makes you feel a lot worse about yourself. And there's lots of people who, I mean, there's a reason we say like dress to impress, but it's not just to dress to impress. You actually feel better. You dress up for a job interview and you will feel more confident going into that interview. Um, there's all this psychology of clothing, so it's sort of, it's like, yeah, not getting, like, you maybe don't want to get dressed because you are depressed, but then you're going to, it's just going to be a cycle, right, mm-hmm. of, like, feeling horrible, um, which I think is is something that's really interesting to think about in terms of, yeah, working from home and, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in that, you know, about a year and a half into that work from home experiment, I went and got a part-time job at Chick-fil-A. Because there's nothing else to do, mm-hmm. you know, except... Yeah, it, no, it was literally like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a dishwasher, I'm a line cook, and the hiring manager's like, what is this guy doing? I'm like, Chick-fil-A, but I'm like losing my mind. Yeah. No, there was something, I think, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word? Dignifying. Yeah. About yeah. putting on mm-hmm. a uniform and going to work and being accountable yeah. to a space. And to other people, mm-hmm. um, it, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's why that's why I talk too about like it's not just about honoring other people. It is about like, do I honor myself? Like, do I realize like who I am actually? And do I dress like I know who I am, or do I dress like I'm a lost waif wandering in the woods? Like, because um, I think goblin core. Yeah. No. Um, like, do I know who I am, and do I dress like I do? I mean, I was talking. Was I talking to you about this, Anna? Um, I was like, do you realize in, I don't have a Bible right here. Do you realize what God calls us? If, if you are in Christ, who you are, you are a priest. You are royal. Like, why do we dress like, like gutter snipes when we've been taken out of the gutter? (laughs) Yes, Ben. But just the, the whole the whole thing of identity also mm-hmm. is interesting to me because it's it's the, the, the assumption behind all the language like those three quotes from different fashion folks that you, is that like that you have an identity and this is how you let the world see and express it and this, mm-hmm. you know you know it's like your your body is in your clothing or like the palette you choose to use to, to express something that is supposedly distinct and you supposedly know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you look at the at the, the the constant turnover of fashion and the constant sort of spazzing out and, and like no this no this no that you know it's clear that there is no sense of or, or no stable sense of identity because it's not so much that there's a self that I'm that I am showing forth mm-hmm. it's I am trying to figure out what the self is by things that I, that I buy, and, and so mm-hmm. there's a, a process of uh, hollowing out of identity. I think the more consumeristic mm-hmm. yeah. you become, the, the more hollowed out and vacuous, mm-hmm. empty, and the less we yeah. actually know who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the thing that struck me about, about some of the things you're saying is just how the commercial marketplace just capitalizes mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. That insecurity, that lack of identity, like that, the, the fact that fashion changes, fashion is changing constantly, and I need to express my identity by it. That is just that is just a lifelong setup for blasting money on clothes constantly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because you're ne- because you're not going to be mm-hmm. satisfied, you're always insecure, mm-hmm. always going to be insecure um, that you stick out too much, or that you fit in too much, or that you like. It, it's mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. People are terrified of the, two, of the two opposite ends of the mm-hmm. <laughs> spectrum. Like, there's no. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just find it very, very sad, and but also just mm-hmm. like it's something that that sort of um, consumerism has produced in us, but also is is and wants to perpetuate. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, Marty. I think what Roscoe said is that's interesting. I just heard on the on the news. I think yesterday or the day before. Um, large percentage of workers wanting to keep working at home, not going back to the workplace, but employers really fighting that and mm-hmm. wanting their staff to come in and, and you yeah. know, not wanting to capitulate to, you know, you can no, you can work at home, you know, five days a week, but maybe making some compromises some part of the time, but it seems like a real a real mm-hmm. tension being released between a very high percentage of Workers who like being at home now, mm-hmm. like being able to be in their pajamas, I guess. Um, and they're, but their employees, employers saying, no, we, you know, you need to come in. And 
was also struck by a, my neighbor, who is a good friend, and I walk with her regularly. She's a lawyer who does a, a lot of work for with refugees and and mm -hmm. um, immigrants, trying to get. And, and when she, during the during a lot of COVID, when she would have to go to court, it would be on Zoom in her house, but she would dress up mm -hmm. and she would put on makeup, and she would basically dress the way she would if she was going to court. Mm -hmm. and, which I thought was very interesting and, and really important, obviously, because, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. the, the occasion mm -hmm. was important, and she's, you know, um, speaking on behalf of people who are very vulnerable, mm -hmm. and and for her to dress as a lawyer mm -hmm. <laughs> was really was really important. And mm -hmm. that's showing respect for the judge. Like, a lawyer is yeah. strategic. You would yeah. never dress like a slob Absolutely. if you were going to court before a judge. Mm -hmm. And same with Zoom trials. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you just respect the judge. Like why, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. not help your case. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You probably experienced that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dressing up as mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Julie, did you have something before? Kind of. Um, it's from a couple points ago. Mm -hmm. But um, the I don't know. Maybe it's a it was a, a Budapest thing. But um, being a person that just escaped high school during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I know me and the rest of my class, pretty much, because we had a group chat, we would always talk about this during classes, um, <laughs> being able to not worry about having to look good mm -hmm. in front of each other and to be able to relax really improved a lot of our interpersonal relationships mm -hmm. um, because we weren't always being concerned about, oh, I need to look presentable. It was, oh, I can relax and you won't be upset with me about that. Mm -hmm. And so hearing this other take on it, it's very interesting because when, like, when I'd invite friends over, I always felt so honored when they would show up in their PJs mm -hmm. because it's like, oh good, you feel comfortable enough around me yep. to, to just let yourself be instead mm -hmm. of constantly worrying about if you are okay. Because yeah. at that point, you're not worried and you can be with mm -hmm. that person. And yeah. So it's, um, yeah. how would you like, how do you reckon with how? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think, I mean, so I think, like, in the term, in terms of, like, being high, high school friends, hanging out, like, if that's your culture, that's fine. The thing that I still have questions about, though, is, like, both of those is about worrying, like, about, like, me. Like, what do they think about me? Are they going to think I look weird? Are they going to think I look dorky or whatever it is, right? Um, which is like high school. <laughs> um, that's yeah. a lot of what high school is. And yeah, and what if it was about like, well, um, what would, yeah, what would honor Jilly, you know, if, I, if I'm going to her house or, um, so it's, so what I'm offering here is like just, this is a really different paradigm. Um, It's not impossible. Um, I don't think, but it's it's it is a, it is like like Sarah pointed out, like quite a counter cultural rubric to have. I mean, it's it's counter human rubric to have because we are so un, like naturally we are so insecure about our own identities and what other people think about us and you know whether they think I'm weird or dorky or whatever. Um, but what if we were free from that? Yeah. That's kind of what I'm asking, and, and Sarah pointed that out as well. Yeah, Ben. 
just, just thinking, one, one, of the, one of the really compelling arguments for school uniforms, which is exactly what you described, mm-hmm. yep. is, is that it, that also removes the tension of, well, what is that person wearing and why? And I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry that, that uh, for, I mean, it, 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 in English public schools, it's, it's, a, it's one of the ways in which class distinctions are visibly kind of erased. Like, yeah. you, you can't tell who's poor. You can't tell. You, um, mm-hmm. and, and so, and, I mean, I, 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 having, having children that have gone to a school with uniforms for many, many years, it is, it is you know, freeing. unbelievably freeing. Mm-hmm. Because the argument or the the the, the um, kind of agonizing of what one should wear in the morning is and there's different ways in which people can express some individuality, you know. But there's still like it's not a free, open, wide open uh, choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's actually I really have grown to to love and appreciate it. And mm-hmm. I, I I just uh, just one thing I. And I don't remember where it is exactly, but I seem to remember. I, th- I think it's in Paralandra, the, the um, second of the of Lewis's trilogy, uh, where it's one of the many things that this sort of demonic character is trying to tempt the woman into do- is, is into vanity, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's some there's some sort of mirror-like thing that he's fashioned so that she can actually look at herself repeatedly, mm-hmm. and and she she hasn't been corrupted. She's sort of curious, you know, you know, but she's not just sitting there, um, you know, doing her hair all day long or something like this. But I, th- I think it's, I don't know whether it's in there or whether it's somewhere else, but, but he refers to, like, that beauty, the beauty of a person is for the other. Mm-hmm. It's like the point of, of looking beautiful or attractive or whatever is, is it's for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. And that's a... That's a very, very big difference between mm-hmm. it's something that I'm using so that the other will will think well of me, and then that I can maybe use for, to some advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's just to feel good about myself, or to manipulate, or to to, to um, and, uh, and so a sense that you know someone's personal beauty is not for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's good. In, in a sense, we're not made to look in the mirror. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, we're made to mm-hmm. be unself-conscious about yeah. who we are. But mm-hmm. uh, but but who we are is for the other to see, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. I, I totally I think I feel like it corresponds to yeah to the rubric you're talking about, where shifting from a concern for what people will think of me because I might, because I'm concerned about myself to what would honor them, mm-hmm. what, what would ple- what would be pleasing to them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I guess one question I have is like. There's particularly, I think, in, in um, just sort of a fallen dynamic of women dressing to impress men or women dressing, you know, mm-hmm. you know sex, sexually. Um, and it is, on the surface, maybe looks like it's for the other. Mm-hmm. But um, it's maybe for the other in really unhealthy ways, pleasing something that shouldn't be pleased to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 in a, in a world in which so many women are, are sort of disempowered in every other way, this is this is like an, an aspect of power to hold on to. Mm-hmm. It's just using your sexuality, mm-hmm. dressing in a way to to, to um, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I just 
there's, but there's a world of difference there between, yeah. because yeah. it's not about love of the other mm-hmm. really it's not, it's not about actually caring for yeah. the other yeah I don't know I, I, yeah I, it's I, not I, about I about love for the other or, or honor for the other or love for like appropriate love for yourself right. or, or right, honor right, for right, yourself right. either right like um and that's that's why I just really briefly mentioned this, but say in resisting decay, I think it, it's decadence. Um, is it also includes resisting our culture's impulse to objectify yeah, people yeah, yeah. and to and usually through sexualization. Um, I think that is something really worth resisting. Um, yeah. Did you have something, Sarah? Uh, yeah, it's different. That's fine. Social history question, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm think I'm thinking about how I don't know where maybe this is was here. Mm-hmm. Like that boys would have short pants when they were little, mm-hmm. and then they graduate to long pants. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, little girls. There are certain articles of clothing that are adult associated with being an adult mm-hmm. and like you would want to aspire to when I get to wear the long pants you mm-hmm. know and <clears throat> I guess I'm I'm thinking about our our intense like move toward being more and more casual mm-hmm. and how I don't know someone made a comment to me years ago about how like we we all just try to wear play clothes mm-hmm. like little like kids play clothes all the mm-hmm. time, like, and so instead of kids aspiring to, to dress like grown-ups, grown-ups are just aspiring to dress like children all mm-hmm. the time, basically, and, um, anyway, so I'm curious if you know anything about mm-hmm. sort of the, that, that term, like, is that a cultural revolution, you know, like, late 1950s and the 60s, like, and then, like, why is it high school and the 20s, like, the new... The younger generation is the one that defines like what's what trending. Um, is, like, is it is that new? I would I would guess that it corresponds with the rise of youth culture and, and like the idolization of youth that, that is from yeah the fifties and sixties when teenagers first became a thing. Yeah. There weren't teen like people did go through their teens obviously, but there wasn't a <laughs> life stage yeah. called teenager. Um, you were a child, and then you were an adult, um, and there were usually youth cultures. Yeah, youth youth culture exactly, and um, and then there were specific rites of passage that marked that journey. Um, you were yeah, um, yeah, and I don't know I don't know a ton about about those markers. I mean, yeah, obviously, like when when boys started wearing long pants, and when when girls would start putting their hair up. And, and wearing longer skirts, like those were particular, mm-hmm. yeah, markers of maturity, and um, and then ability to take on more responsibility, right, with that, and um, yeah. But I think I think it would be with like the, the rise of youth culture, and, and mm-hmm. you know, p- with the post post World War Two, mm-hmm. particular. Um, I mean, there there is sort of um, a tendency to, to idolize youth. I think across time, in a lot of ways, not not to the degree that we do now in the 20th and 21st centuries. I don't think, but I think that is there. Um, that has been there. I mean, that's why the Bible does talk so much about like 
these are some of the problems with being young. These are some of the, you know, like in Proverbs, there's just so much about like being young and being old and what's beautiful about both of them <laughs> at different times and things like that. So, yeah. But I think you're right. I think that, that idea of like, yeah, wearing play clothes. I mean, like athleisure has just taken off during the pandemic because that's like sweatpants and sweatsuits and stuff um, because you don't have to dress up for things. Um, and it's like yoga pants being pants. Like yoga is not an occasion that we're always living in, but somehow the clothes for it are okay to wear at all times. Um, and so, yeah. So that idea of like, well, I'm cause I'm relaxed. I'm casual. I'm, I'm playing. I mean, our like obsession with leisure is also kind of a, a factor I think as well. There's, there's so much culturally that's, yeah, at play here. No, go for it. There's like just a lot of disconnect on like what the context of what a lot of these expectations are because like I think that a lot of people when they see the expectations it's just performance and I think that society at different times in history has overemphasized performing to a certain standard that there's a point like that the next generation like goes against it in the complete mm-hmm. opposite way to just push back against that. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, like, hearing about, like, the Victorians, how everything was about performance and how you looked outwardly and everything was very, like, detailed in that sense and very superficial, that when people were pushing that out, like, it was out of, like, spite for, you know, kind of, like, the over-obsession with these superficial performances mm-hmm. that people just simplify from that, and that's what you see in, like, the early 1900s. And I'm wondering, like, with the expectations of, like, I don't know, I guess, like, this is, like, adulthood. I mean, you see all this, like, language nowadays being used, like, about, like, like having, like, some very definitive term to say, like, adulting or something, that it just Mm -hmm. feels like it's so overwhelming that I think there's this pushback in the younger culture and maybe even older culture to just reject adulthood or, Mm -hmm. you know, in the case of clothing, like, reject, you know, trying to look good because there's work or performance associated with that. And Mm -hmm. I think, like, with the working from home thing, too, like, it... It is like, it was, I remember when I was going to work, it was like a whole routine to try to figure out what am I going to wear today. It has to look, I have to look nice, but it also has to be different from what I wore earlier this week Mm -hmm. and maybe even last week. Mm -hmm. And I remember like when the Mm -hmm. pandemic first hit, I was like, I was relieved of that. And I, and it's not that I hated doing it before, but Mm -hmm. there was a stress associated with it. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. there was a point when like, later into the pandemic that I did start to feel like pretty miserable like just not being able to do that because Mm -hmm. like you're just you know in your pajamas or something and so I remember when I would go out even just grocery shopping I would try to dress up more Mm -hmm. just to make me like feel better so I think there's like this sense of like there's like this like throughout all this with all these themes it's like there's this lack of self-assurance I think that people you know there's there's a lot of expectations out there and people just can't keep up with it because they think that everything like their self they have to prove themselves Mm -hmm. in some way 
whether it's in the way they look or how they work or yeah. all these things. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right, and I think that that ties back to some of the things Ben said earlier, of just like how, yeah, sad in a way that it is to to think of like, yeah, if that's where your identity is going to have to come from, that's so much work. And where do you like? How is that going to how is that going to be sustainable for you as a person? Um, and and I think that's where we as Christians have something so profound to offer um, to, to, to appropriate ourselves and then also to offer um, and, the, and, the, and it, obviously that I mean you want to talk about identity in Christ that's like how many books here are about that um, like understanding that that's a huge huge thing um, and it's, it's it's our lifetime you know of, of understanding that and, and putting that on <laughs> Getting dressed in that is a lifetime uh, of of learning who who God is and what His grace really means and what that means for us to be in Christ. And um, but I think there's also such an incredible freedom that you know we start to realize as we understand that more and more deeply. Um, and um, yeah, and I think I think that's that's really what I wanted to. to sort of offer us um i mean thinking about like what does this mean that we've been redressed (laughs) um who who we are um and and then ultimately what we hope for for when that that is complete that work is complete um and um there's yeah we could we could go we could probably go all night um, but I'm actually going to wrap us up here. Um, so thank you all for your attention and for being here. And um, I hope you can sleep well and wake up and not feel like there's a monster in your closet. Thank you. Thank you.